0: Father, as we uh, enter into your word this morning, may we not seek only understanding, not only knowledge, but change, application, and to hear from you, not only to understand a text in a book, but Lord, to understand what you are speaking into our lives. Let us be focused on you, the author of our faith, the author of our stories. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Now the the full passage selection for this week was 16 through 19 and also 25 through 30. Uh, but I found I I found <laughs> I heard and received two sermons throughout the week and decided to split it up into two. So this is a two-part message, um, splitting this passage in half. We're going to look at the first few verses today. It reads like this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." As you've discovered, I often like to uh, open messages by sharing uh, a little bit of advice or teaching about how to understand the Word of God, little tips and things to, to help as we're diving into a passage, things for you to take home with you into your own private study and devotional life. And here's what I have for you this morning. There are times, for me with sermon prep, there are weeks where the study, where the understanding is very research-driven, where uh, the the main point of a message comes from something I read in a commentary or a book or an article. There are times where understanding is from looking into language and in Greek or, or, or comparing different translations of the word and, and things like that. There are, there are all of these different ways, all of these different tools we use, but sometimes, and this was certainly the case for me this week, the best advice I can give if you want to understand the Word of God is to just slow down. That's it. Just slow down. <laughs> you don't have to take any classes in other languages. You don't have to read 100 pages. Just stop. Sit down, as it were, metaphorically. Although I don't necessarily recommend reading the studying the Bible standing up. It's hard to take notes. It's all right. Sit down metaphorically. Take a break. Look around you and see what you see. It's like I just imagine if you're walking through a room, and I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, But if you're in public and you're walking through and perhaps for whatever reason, maybe you needed a break, maybe you uh, needed to stop and tie your shoe, but have you ever taken a moment in a busy, crowded public place to just stop and sit and look and survey? And if you do that, you will see probably all sorts of interesting things and interesting people and things that people do and... Um, something that someone does that they think nobody saw. And, but more than that, what you realize is how much you miss. If you just walk down a crowded street, how much you miss versus if you sit. Stop worrying about your goals, where you're trying to get, where you're trying to walk to, and just sit and see what you see. You'll be amazed at the details that you've never noticed before. Or even details in architecture, or the way the, the sidewalk is laid out, or maybe there's, there's bricks that you never noticed, or this and that, and the text, our Bibles, are often the same way. But often, we need to set aside the tools and the strategies, and especially if you're preparing a message or a Bible study, the goal of that finished product to share, and how to effectively communicate it and just Just sit. And just rest. And so this week, I, as I always do, I read commentaries and I looked at the significant words in Greek and to see what was there and what things meant. And I did all those things. But really, where everything that I'm going to share comes with today come and came from today, is not honestly a whole lot. It's very simple. Came from just resting in the text. So if you've been around church it's another passage that if I started it I'm sure 3 quarters of you in the room could finish it but Jesus says this he says to what shall I compare this generation so he looks out and he says how do I how do I show you who you are he looks at the people that he's preaching to especially the people who are in opposition to him and he says how do I get you to understand. Because it's really hard to look at ourselves, right? And often, obviously, Jesus speaks in metaphor and parable almost exclusively because it's a very powerful way to communicate, but especially when he's trying to convict someone. He uses the same tactic, actually, as the prophet Nathan. Remember the story of Nathan? Nathan goes to King David because King David has committed a sin. He's stolen a man's wife, and he's had the man killed. And Nathan knows that if he just confronts David on his actions, David will get defensive. He'll put a wall up. It won't go well. And so he makes up, or at least he tells. We don't know if he made it up. He tells this story about another man who did basically the same thing David did, except with sheep instead of wives. And David is outraged. When he's looking at the story in someone else, when he's looking at the sin in someone else, he's better able to just honestly respond. And as he responds with fury and anger and passion, Nathan says, Oh, sorry, mixed up my details. It wasn't this other guy I was actually talking about. You. At which point, David has already responded. He's already reacted. It's easier to see faults in other people than it is to see faults in ourselves. Right? And that's what Jesus does. He uses the same tactic as Nathan. He says, Look, if I just tell you what you're doing wrong, you're not going to receive it. So here's what he says What can I say? To give you an image outside of yourself that you can look at and analyze and understand what it is you're doing. He's very clear. Sometimes he just gives a parable and then gives the application. This time he says, look, I'm going to tell you a parable. I'm going to give you a metaphor. And here is why this is about you. So this is what he gives To them, and this is what we want to look at. And eventually, what we want to do as we understand it is to look at where we fit in. Are we in this parable? And what does this parable, what does this image give us, what does it tell us about what Jesus wants for his relationship with us? So he says this this generation is like children who are sitting in the marketplace. So go ahead, if you've got active imaginations, go ahead and put yourself there in just this marketplace in, in uh, first century Israel. And there's just all sorts of things going on, and there's these children there. And they call to their playmates, and they say, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now this is where we need to slow down. Because especially if you've read this passage a hundred times, and even if you hadn't, that phrase comes and goes very quickly. And it almost sounds like it's just some common saying, some uh, common phrase that just in itself is self-explanatory and makes sense and we can just move on. I know that for much of my life, this is one of those passages that I read through it and was guilty of never really understanding what was happening in verse 17, but just skipped over it to get to the explanation. Because Jesus offers some explanation afterwards, and so you can really just skip over the metaphor and just hear what he meant by it. Right? Wrong. Thanks. So that's where we're going to stop. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. What does that mean? So here's the scenario. Also, the fact that it's kind of, they say it as a describing an event in the past makes it easy to skip. But but let's go back to that event. What is it that these children that Jesus talks about are describing what is that event let's go back to that event so we have these children and they're they're in the marketplace and they're talking to these other children so the scenario must have been it's pretty easy to put the pieces together the scenario must have been that you had some children that wanted to interact with these other children and they wanted to they wanted to encourage these other children to engage in some activity and so they begin to to play I don't know how many flutes they had, but they played music. Right? They played a flute, they played music, and the encouragement was for the other children to dance. They played this, this up, upbeat, uplifting, kind of happy, get-you-moving kind of song, expecting dance to be what came out of the others, and yet it didn't happen. Obviously, they must have had some expectation. Again, we don't want to read too much into the story, but... If they're upset about it, they must have expected the other children to dance. Perhaps it was something they did often. Maybe they went every day to the marketplace and would play music and sing songs and dance with one another. Maybe that was just their common practice. But whatever the case, it didn't work. They played the music and no dancing followed. So then, in an effort to be accommodating of the other... They said, well, we really wanted to play music and be uplifting and upbeat, and you could dance, and it would be fun, and it would be a time of joy, but we will be accommodating of you, and we will instead sing a dirge. Perhaps the reason that you're not dancing is because you're mourning. Maybe in the last day or two, someone from your family died, or a loved one, or something happened, or someone was injured. Whatever the case, you're clearly not in the mood for dancing in joyful celebration, so we will do the opposite. We will sing a dirge. We will provide an opportunity for you to mourn, since clearly that must be what you need to do. And, and, and yet, even that did not engage. So you have this situation where neither option, these two opposites, these two different things evoked any sort of engagement or agreement or or perhaps even acknowledgement from the other children. They didn't engage. And so Jesus points out how similar that is to the difference or the, the difference between himself and John the Baptist and the similarity in the response. He says, look, John came... And he was fasting, and he, would, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't drink, he wasn't going to parties, he wasn't being social. He just lived out in the wilderness. He was as, as minimalist and as ascetic and, and just as, as simple a life as he could have, as humble a life as he could have, and you didn't like that. For whatever reason, Jesus doesn't go into it, but he said, Look, you said that he had a demon. So then I came, and I didn't do that. I gave you the opposite. Perhaps you don't want a prophet who just lives out in the wilderness and keeps to himself and doesn't come to any of the social gatherings and doesn't interact with people. So then I came, and you received a prophet who does all of those things, who spends time with other people and sits around the table and doesn't make people uncomfortable because of how different he lives his life. Ultimately, that must have been the rejection of John the Baptist, that he was just so different that people couldn't connect with him. And so I came in a way that you could connect with me. And I came and I would sit at your feasts and I would sit at your parties and I would be in the social situations and you've called me a glutton and an alcoholic. Have you ever had a... Ever had a person that was, at least you thought, a friend, but every time you try to make plans with them, they're not interested? And if you say, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And say, ah, I'm not really up to that. And you're like, all right, well, hey, do you want to come over for a movie night then? Maybe Maybe you've got uh, some some ankle problems, so we'll scratch the walk. We won't do physical activity. Why don't you come over and we'll walk? No, I don't really want to. Okay, well, do you want to grab? You call them the next week. Hey, do you want to go out for coffee sometimes? Ah, I don't really want to to go out for coffee. Early mornings are kind of tough for me. And then you call them the next week and say, uh, hey, uh, it's going to be 100 degrees this week. How about we go out for ice cream, my treat? No, I don't really feel like ice cream, and you begin to realize they've given you option after opposite option on every side of the aisle and in every situation and every single time you're not interested. And you begin to understand that that person is not so much a friend, right? Because eventually you would give them an option that they liked. If they hate getting up early in the morning, to go out for coffee, then they should, in theory, like going out later at night for an activity, right? And if they really don't like walking, then they probably like sitting, right? Then you begin to understand, well, I've given you this and the opposite and this and the opposite. I think you just don't like me, right? Right? And that's not always necessarily this horrible, bad thing. It's just somebody you're not going to get along with, you're not going to be friends with. But you begin to understand it's not about the activities. It's not that they don't like coffee. It's not that they don't like going for a walk. It's not that they don't like ice cream, like some sort of psychopath. There we go. You realize there's just not a connection there. Jesus points out that that's what's happening. The children in the marketplace, they play a song to dance to and no one dances, and then they sing a dirge and no one mourns. It's really that they just don't want to interact with the children. They're just not interested in that relationship itself. It's not about the music, upbeat versus versus somber. It's about the relationship that they're not interested in having. And that is what was wrong with Jesus' generation. Essentially what he's saying is, look, you really didn't care that much that John didn't eat. You really don't care that much that he ate the bugs, that he didn't drink wine, that he kept to himself. In fact, really, the Pharisees should have loved his dedication and his discipline. He should have been all over that. You didn't have a problem with him not eating and drinking. Just like you don't have a problem with me, Jesus, eating and drinking. He says you don't you don't really have a problem with the fact that I go to parties and you don't have a problem with the fact that I go to feasts and I'm involved in the people, you just really don't want to change. You're not rejecting John and my dietary practices. You're just using that as an excuse to not accept our message of repentance, change, and growth. Now, I'm not sure what we do with that, so let's take it a little farther. Here's what's really interesting to me about this passage we recognize now that this is not about situations, this is about relationship, it's not about preferences. It's about willingness to accept a ministry. I don't know how I had never thought about this until this week. Here's another tip for you. Sometimes the best way to understand something is to sit down and just list all of the things that it isn't. And I did that this week, and I said, okay, this, this idea, this picture of the children... In the, the dancing, and the singing, what were they looking for? And that's kind of hard to exactly figure out, but let's talk about what they weren't looking for. And as such, what Jesus is not looking for. There's no mention in the passage and in Jesus' story that there was any kind of critique or criticism of the quality of music. That wasn't there. It wasn't an issue where the other children said, well, we'd love to dance, but you are terrible at the flute. Right? It wasn't that the music was bad. There's no mention of um, the other children even saying anything negative at all about the ones from whose perspective we have. It's not, we played the flute for you and you hurled insults at us. It's not we played the flute for you and you tried to turn our own friends against us. It's not we played the flute for you and you tried to have us killed. It's not we sang a dirge and then you started to dance. It's not we sang a dirge and then you got one of my disciples to betray me and turn me over to Pontius Pilate and put. It's none of those things. It's not disagreement, it's not argument. What is it that the other children did wrong? It wasn't, it wasn't about disagreeing. It was about not participating. You see, you could tell the story like this. You could tell the story and add these details between the lines, and it would still make sense. We played the flute for you, and you told us that you loved it. You told us it was the best flute playing that you've ever heard in your life, that it filled you with joy, that it filled you with excitement, that you so appreciated it, that you sent me a thank you note the next day to tell me how much you loved my flute playing in the marketplace, and you told me that it was wonderful and that it was great, and that you're just not the kind of person who dances in public. And you did not dance. The story makes sense that way, doesn't it? Obviously, I just made up all of those details. They're not in the text. But I made up all those details and it fits, which tells us that those details are fairly irrelevant. And that's not something that we want to hear. It's not something that we want to hear as believers. Jesus says, look what matters. And sure, it was a problem that the Pharisees disagreed with Jesus. It was a problem that the Pharisees rejected him and that they reviled him. It was a problem, of course, that they that they convinced one of his own disciples to betray him. It was a major problem that they put him on trial and that they beat him and that they all of those things are bad. All of those things are bad. However that's not what Jesus talks about in this. He says, Look, even if you do none of those things, even if you agree with everything I say, even if you tell me that you love my teaching, even if you tell me that, that it's it's wonderful and it's great, even if you are not hostile, he says, What I'm looking for is for you to get up and dance. Says, I'm looking for you to mourn. See, God will. God will call you to what you're able to do. If you're in the midst of sorrow, he's not going to tell you to get up and dance. He says, Oh, that's not. Right? That's the story. I invited you to come dance, and you weren't in a place where you could dance, and so I sang a dirge to meet you where you are. But even still, you didn't join me. You didn't participate. So the call for us then as believers in this story is simple. Our theology is important. Our belief is important. Our putting our belief in Jesus is important making the decision to follow Christ, making the decision to be for, allow him to forgive us of our sins so we can be redeemed, those are all important. But beyond that, there's something else. And he says, look, you've got to participate. You've got to join me in the work that I'm doing. And if not, then you're missing it. And don't blame it on other things. Don't blame your, your inability to participate in a church on the fact that you don't like the way they run events or the way they do things, or don't blame it on that, that you don't get along with those sorts of people or the timing is off. Or He says, just be honest. If you don't want to participate in what I'm doing, say you don't want to participate in what I'm doing. Be honest with yourself about it. I think that's a very difficult truth for all of us to hear. So I don't know where that lands for you. I'm not preaching this because of any specific situation I've seen or experienced in this place. This sermon isn't meant for one person in particular or one group. I'm just preaching it as I hear it. Where are the areas in our lives that God is calling us to participation? And we find excuses to push against it. What are the areas in your life? Where are the areas in my life where we convince ourselves because we're not the Pharisees who outright rejected his words what are the areas in our lives where we by our acknowledgement of his teachings and our beliefs are holding back from participating in the work that God is doing in the things that he calls us to let's pray father we uh times of weakness, or in places of immaturity, physically, spiritually, it's so easy for us to be dishonest, and so easy in particular to be dishonest with ourselves. So Lord, I pray that you reveal to us in this place and in this moment The areas in our lives where we are just, there's no easy way to say it, where we're just making excuses. God, we're not, we're not necessarily talking this morning about all-out rebellion, about rejection of your will and your plan for our lives. We are very likely are not even aware of what we're doing. We're not willingly or consciously rejecting you or what you would have us do. We just, we see things that we are uncomfortable with and we push against them. Lord, I, I believe there are areas in our lives that we don't even see. We don't even realize what we're doing. But I pray, Lord... That you remove that veil, that you allow us to see clearly the areas in our lives where we are pushing back. Those areas in our lives where you are calling us to stand up and join in the dance of your kingdom, and we keep our seats. For whatever reason, whatever motivation, whatever insecurities or challenges or pains or fears we have, Lord, remove those from our lives, remove those from our hearts, that we may serve, that we may dance, that we may be a part of your kingdom. May we remember that Accepting you means joining you in in your work. Joining you in spreading love and peace to those around us. Joining you in setting out to share love and acceptance and peace with those that we encounter in our day-to-day lives, Lord. Let us not lose sight of the mission but let us join you. We thank you, Lord, for taking us into account, for calling us to what we're able to do, for calling us to work in, in ways that fit with the season of life that we are in, that that you see us, that you are not just passing out directives, you are not just sending out a to-do list of tasks that need to be accomplished regardless of how they work for us, but Lord, we we thank you that you see us. That you shift that you shift to make room for us. May we be obedient. May we be accepting. May you may we join you. In all that you're doing around us. Amen.